Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening, and welcome to episode 0000192 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host through to 8 o'clock this evening. Uh, Broadcasting to you this evening from Radio City Docklands for the first time in 2023, which of course is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And uh, I've got to tell you, the uh, Studio B, where I'm sitting right now, is uh, very, very warm because it faces west, looking towards uh, water on country. So um, respects to them too. But if um, I pass out during the next hour, it's only because I'm totally and utterly dehydrated and I'm suffering head exhaustion. But apart from that, the show should go smoothly. Uh, thank you to Vorny for a double bounce. Sorry I couldn't see you today. Vorny, haven't seen you so far this year. I'll come back into the studio, World Headquarters, next week, and uh, uh, I'll uh, chew some fat with you then. Um, thank you to um, Maddie Miller also for filling in last week while I had to go to some sort of literary shindig, familiarise myself with the industry a little bit. But uh, it's good to be back once again with you this evening. Now, of course, there's been a lot happening in my absence. It's going to be um, a year where a lot happens a lot of the time. So... Strap yourselves in for that. But I guess the thing that I wanted to focus on tonight in terms of a a lead up to the show was the 15th anniversary of the apology to the Stolen Generation, which fell on yesterday, February the 13th. Now, there are a lot of complicated emotions around the anniversary, uh, mainly because life and the issues that impact us are complicated. And it's through those prisms that we reflect on things like the apology and how far we've come and how far we haven't come. Because so much and so little has happened in the intervening years all at once. And it can make it difficult to recall events without things being somewhat distorted through space and time and our lived experience. But what I thought I would do is try and take myself and, and hopefully give you a picture as best I can of what it was actually like in not only the days and months leading up to the apology, but the years leading up to the to the apology. We had in 1993 the, the Mabo case where the lie that was Terranalius was dis- disbanded, um, thrown out by the High Court of Australia. They recognised that there were First Nations people living here for thousands and thousands of years before white settlement or invasion, whichever way you want to put it. And so then it was up to the Keating government to force through native title, deal with the legislative response to that uh, high court decision. They did that through the Native Title Act. And um, there was a whole bunch of scare tactics that went with that, people in the conservative side of politics, the John Hewsons, the John Howards, the Peter Rees, the Nationals, of course, were 
launching a massive scare campaign around how native title would affect people's homes and backyards and people would lose their houses. And that was something that uh, had to be combated by the, by the Kenyan government and, as a result, cost him and his government a whole lot of political capital in the process. And then after uh, three or so years, Howard came in, John Howard came in, and Hansenism was unleashed on the national conversation. And the national conversation, as a result of that, hasn't really recovered since. Uh, we had uh, WIC legislation as well at the time in which the nationals in particular uh, were very keen to make sure there was bucket loads, and these are the words that uh, we use, bucket loads of native title extinguishment. So they would do that by making sure that um, it was incredibly difficult for traditional owners to actually prove an ongoing relationship with the land. Um, when you take into consideration that basically uh, colonialism and the genocide that ensued with it made that something very, 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 very difficult to do, that ensured that there was bucket loads of natal title um, ex extinguishment during those years, and that includes my mob, uh, the Yorta Yorta too. So we had that sort of mindset, and then we had Hansenism that was unleashed, and that gave rise to shock jocks and some truly awful members of the commentariat that flourished during the 11 years of the Howard government and still have a platform today to basically sprout their racist nonsense. Throughout that whole period, John Howard, as the Prime Minister, refused to apologise to the members of the Stolen Generation. It was a movement that had gained an energy over the course of his prime ministership and it was something that Stolen Generation's members were asking for, an apology from the Australian government. Howard, being the cultural warrior that he was and is, refused to do that. And I remember the scenes where he was presenting to a conference in Melbourne, two members of the Stolen Generation, and he ended up giving them some sort of shouty sermon which resulted in members of the audience standing up and turning their back on him because they felt that what he was saying and conveying to them was just so disrespectful. And so that resulted in a, a grassroots movement that uh, led to sort of more of a, a national movement. We remember scenes in, I think it was 1998, in which thousands of people walked or marched across the Sydney Harbour Bridge as an act of reconciliation. So there was a mood for it, but Howard would have uh, none of it. And he also worked with uh, historians to make sure that the telling of the true history of this place was also whitewashed, and that gave birth in full to the what I describe as the tiresome and loathsome cultural wars. And throughout this whole period, this back, back, and, forring, uh, back and forth between uh, people on the left, on the, on the right, and uh, Aboriginal people stuck in the middle, members of the Stolen Generation, their numbers continued to dwindle. And so when we had a new government elected in 2007, with one promise, and the first promise, and one of the first acts of that government by the Prime Minister of the time, Kevin Rudd, to apologise on behalf of the Australian government to the members of the Stolen Generation, that was a massive thing. And it was an extremely emotional thing. And it was the first time that in the parliament itself, the wrongs done to members of the Stolen Generation and to Aboriginal people more broadly were really acknowledged in a comprehensive way. We had the Red Fern speech, but that wasn't in the parliament and that wasn't on behalf of 
the government. So was the apology welcome? Yes, it was. Was it something that members of the stolen generations needed to hear? Absolutely. Go back on YouTube and have a look at some of the scenes from that day. But what what clouds our memory of it now is how little or how far we have progressed since those times. We're still locking children up at record rates. They are still being taken away from their families at record rates. We have uh, um, poor educational attainment. We have people living with two or three diseases at a time. We have culture being eroded through the removal of children from their families. We have a movement to put a voice in the Constitution to Parliament. That's a great thing. But I just, I just wanted to take a moment to remind people what a big moment that was for members of the Stolen Generation and for Aboriginal people more broadly. And it's sad to see that the numbers of people who are members of the Stolen Generation continue to dwindle because they deserved so much more that they got and they still deserve so much more that they are going to get as currently outlined by any particular government across the country. Um, on tonight's show, I'm going to be speaking with uh, Auntie Geraldine Atkinson again to give us an update at the start of the year on where the treaty process is at in Victoria. There are elections coming up in May. I have been saying that they've been coming up in March and previous shows, but they are coming up in May. And um, after that, you would be familiar with all the things and reportage that is coming out of Alice Springs at the moment. So I'll be speaking with uh, Tanya McDonald, uh, lecturer in children's health and community from Charles Darwin University. She resides in Alice Springs at the moment and she has written an article for the conversation about all the complexities of the crime wave, as reported, engulfing Alice Springs over the recent months. Um, it is going to be another large year in terms of the treaty process here in Victoria. There are going to be lots of ins and outs. There are going to be elections. And there's going to be a whole lot of machinations around where we get to in terms of progressing a negotiation with treaty or treaties. So who better than to have Annie Geraldine Atkinson on the show to talk about these matters once again. Uh, Annie Geraldine is a proud Bangarang Wiradjuri woman and is the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. She's committed her whole life to improving outcomes for her people across a range of portfolio areas, including education, child protection, and cultural heritage. I could reel off some, I could reel off a whole lot more, but we've got to get on with the show. So, Annie Geraldine, welcome back to the mission. Thank you very much for, for having me, Daniel. I uh, enjoy talking. Yeah, I love, I love having you on the show. Um, we were just talking off air, um, uh, and I was just doing the sort of the, the usual small talk thing, like how was your Christmas and New Year's? Mm -hmm. But your Christmas and New Year's wasn't too uh, crash hot, was it? No. <laughs> well, what happened, Daniel? I live in Barmer, and we were our house. It was completely well. The whole town of Barmer was completely surrounded by water, and we couldn't. Um, we were actually told. Uh, early on the piece by the SES to, to leave, otherwise we wouldn't be able to get out, wouldn't be able to get out to do any shopping, wouldn't be able to get out to do anything, which turned out to be, be, be quite right because the whole our whole house was surrounded with water. It didn't come in because we built up high, which uh, we were, you know, that was a blessing, but it certainly did flood all around my, all around the yards, all around the area. So the cars out, cars out in the yard and... Oh, we had only, fortunately, I've got a very wonderful nephew that was able to come up and put 
our kids' motorbikes up on the veranda so they weren't flooded uh, and, I mean, well, they weren't destroyed. So, But it was really, <coughs> you know, we really thought that COVID was bad and we thought we'd <laughs> gone through things that were really thin. And then we have the floods and you don't realise until it happens to you that, it, that you know, that it, it's, it's a reality, just how it makes you feel. Which yeah. is, is, you know, sort of really down and depressed and, and anxiety and the worry about what could have happened or what could happen was that. Was, was that. So we, were, we lived with our daughter for two months. I don't know how she put up with us. <laughs> <laughs> but my husband kept asking me every day, when are we going home? <laughs> it's uh, two months. So we, got, we got home just in time for Christmas. To, so we were able to get, get home, clean up and... It wasn't perfect, but at least, you know, sort of we were able to get get uh, Christmas underway and yeah. have it here and our kids come. So two months doesn't sound that long on uh, on paper, but, but when you're living in someone house, someone else's house and you're worried about your own and you're worried about the community in which you live in, that um, must have seemed like an extremely long period of time. It was, and it, and it, did, it did, Daniel, because, you know, we were worried about... You know the fellas down at Cumra about their yeah their houses being flooded at Cumra Gunja and about you know the people other people living here in Barmer about houses being flooded. But um, we we got off pretty good. The, our next door neighbour lost his business because it just completely um, it, oh, you know sort of he his shed where he does his mechanical work and everything was just completely destroyed the whole, you know. So there are people that kind of really have have done it hard and it was really a hard, you know, it was a hard, a harsh time and it was a hard time to live through. Yeah. How's the mozzie situation up there at the moment? Oh, it was dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. It it was, I can tell you, I could not sit on my veranda without, and I'd make sure I'd wear pants that were long. Yeah, yeah. You'd put thongs on and they'd bite your feet. <sighs> and it was, you know, they were shocking. They were really, really heavy. Lucky we, um, we've got a good doctor and she said that because where we live, uh, so we were able to get uh, that um, injection against that encephalitis. Oh, Japanese yeah, the Japanese, yeah. So, yeah, so uh, we, we felt a bit safe. Bit safe with that, but you never, you can never tell with these things, Daniel. No. You never know what happens. No, you can't. I, I, um, my sister lives over at uh, Mathara, and I always like to get up there and get in touch with the great outdoors. But then you find yourself uh, sitting outside, covered in layers and layers of chemicals to protect you from mozzies ex- and exactly everything else. Right. That's exactly what we we had to do. We made sure we, especially when we knew our, our grandchildren were coming. For Christmas, so we had, you know, we stocked up on all those, you know, the the uh, Aerogard and all of those sorts of things, yeah. and the ones for children. So yeah, so they'd be protected. So we had to make sure that that happened. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad uh, you, you're through most of that, and that um, you're, you're ready, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure primed for a big uh, 2023, because. 2022 was big, but uh, 2023 promises to be big for the uh, for the treaty process as well and the First Peoples Assembly. I can tell you, 2022 was huge, uh, and over the, the last three years was absolutely. It, it was really, um, uh, you know, sort of a, a, 
a real experience about what we were able to do and what we'd, mm. we'd been able to achieve. So that what we're doing in 2023, so it got us to this point, we were in 2023, that we were able to get our agreements in place and get ready for the, you know, about um, negotiating treaties. So we worked, our members worked really hard over that period of time and we're at that stage now. We're in March, Daniel, we have our last chamber meeting. Mm-hmm. So that's will be the last chamber meeting of these people that have been elected, the first, first elected members of First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. So that their time is up. Well, it's not up. They can they can re-enrol and I mean re-nominate yep. and stand again. And so that can happen. So they, people have the ability to do that. But that's that's going to happen towards. Um, as I said, our last time of meeting will be in March. Uh, we're putting all of we've we've got all the architecture and those building blocks and everything in place uh, for treaty. What we need to do is make sure then we get out and talk to community. Yep. That uh, you know, sort of, we want really good warriors to put their hands up to uh, to lead the the next iteration of First Peoples Assembly Victoria, because there's so much to be done. You know, we, we uh, the, the state has agreed that First Rebels Assembly uh, can lead on the statewide treaty negotiations, and that's going to be huge, Daniel. Oh, I can imagine. So, yeah, so we've got, we, we negotiated, so there's minimum standards that First Rebels Assembly have to take in relation to that, and that's ensuring that they have that, um, the contact communication consultation and advisory capacity that with the Aboriginal uh, community-controlled organisations because the statewide treaty is going to ensure that what we do is we get better outcomes for, um, you know, those societal things that matter to our people. So it's going to be huge and it's going to be big and we're going to have to make sure that what we do is we have, we have we're inclusive with those Aboriginal-controlled community organisations and there'll, pro- there'll be a process in place for that. Uh, the other thing is, one of the other minimum standards, Daniel, is that we also have to negotiate and be inclusive of all First Peoples of Victoria, yeah. not just the traditional owners. So there has to be a process in place about how we meet those minimum standards and and be inclusive of those people as well. So, there's you know, we've got that work to do Daniel, and we get that in place, and we want to make it right, and we want to make sure that we are inclusive, and we're listening to all community voices, and that we're, we're listening to the community voices with expertise uh, from the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations, and listening to those um, Victorian National people who have lived here all their lives, who were yeah. born here all their lives, and have been a part of our community all their lives, that so they are included. So that's that's a really giant step. That's that's, that, that, so, oh, sorry, that, that's something that um, the whole process has been very cognizant, cognizant of from the very outset, isn't it? Is that making that First Nations people living in Victoria, no matter where they're from traditionally, um, have felt involved in a part of the process and that their voices yes. continue to be heard? Yes. And we want to make sure with this next iteration that we have that advice and that we do talk to them and that we do consult with them and we have that those mechanisms in place for that to happen, Daniel, so that that's, uh, so that's really important. Because, well, you know, we've been busy uh, working on, you know, creating the architecture towards treaty 
And the next is about, you know, ab about their negotiating treaties. And that's what we where the inclusivity is really important that it, you know, because it will, will uh, enable all Aboriginal people living in Victoria to be a part of what happens in relation to, to uh, treaty making in this state. So the, the 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 new assembly, which will be elected in in May, is going to have a tremendous amount of work ahead of it because it'll be chiefly responsible for negotiating the statewide treaty, but also the members of that assembly are going to have to be finely attuned and in touch with their local communities to make sure that any treaties that are negotiated at a local level are also cognizant of the fact of traditional owners and make sure that their wants and needs and desires are also heard. So it's going to be a very, very big task for, for members of the, the new assembly. It certainly, is, it certainly is, Daniel. And that's, you know, we believe that, you know, it's, it's up to local people to make the local decisions. But what will, will be there and what will be able, it will, it will be able to help them, we have, you know, uh, the self-determination fund yeah. has been agreed upon. We've been in build. We've been building that. You know, working towards charitable status and making sure that we've got, um, you know, sort of our ducks in line with that. And about you know having really great people that I respect very highly about helping us, assisting the assembly with ensuring that we've got a good process in place for the self-determination fund. It is. Uh, so that's going to. Sorry, Daniel. Oh, sorry. No, no, you can continue on. I do not want to interrupt. No, I'm just, just, just to make sure that, you know, sort of that's what the fund is there for. Yeah. To ensure that you know that the localised treaties that are going to be negotiated have assistance and have funds and and enable to employ expertise to assist them during those negotiations. It is 29 past seven. You're listening to the mission on 102.73 Triple RFM or maybe listening to us on the National Indigenous Radio Service across the country. I'm speaking with uh, Annie Geraldine Atkinson, who is the co-chair of the First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Now, like I mentioned, aren't the um, uh, elections are going to be in May. Do you plan to um, put your hand up again and um, run for the Assembly? Oh, at, at, this moment, <laughs> at this moment, Daniel, I, I really haven't decided. Yeah, fair um, enough. You know, I, you know it, it's been really tough three years. It's, it hasn't been easy. Well, yeah, when we think really about COVID on top of it all, you know. I really feel like I've worked my guts out. Yeah. Um, people might not realise that, but it's been a really, a, a really big job. And um, I'm just sort of having a breather. Mm -hmm. You know, because we're, we're sort of to the end. We've we've negotiated, you know, those things that we wanted. We've done the work that we said that we would progress and we were able to get that, you know, even legislation through Parliament. It was a lot of hard work, but we were able to do that. That was a big and moment. It was a huge moment. So it's just at the moment we're taking a breath. But what we're going to do is it is going to ramp up, Daniel, because what we want to do is we want to get out to community and talk to community about what the ne what the next steps are that you know sort of that we we uh, have got planned because it's about letting people know about you know the things that are in place and that you know sort of how um, our then treaties can be negotiated. So it's um, it's about a lot of it's going to be a lot of community engagements. A lot of community information, a lot of getting out to community and seeing what it is that they would want 
in those treaty negotiations because one of the things you said before, that's what we were cognizant of. We had to listen to our community's voices yeah. and in, in all the work that we've done. And I believe that we've done that and I believe that that's what we'll continue to do. Um, last time, if I recall correctly, the election process was held independently of the AEC or the VEC. It was actually an independent process to ensure that mob that wanted to vote didn't have to be on the electoral roll, but they could enrol for this process. Is that going to be the same thing this time, do you know? It's ex- it is exactly the same. Right. It is it is our our role. It doesn't belong to anyone else. But First People's Assembly of Victoria, we have, you know, 16-year-olds uh, are, are unable to vote. That's great. That doesn't usually happen in the other processes um, because we realised that we had, we had uh, such a big cohort of young people in our communities and we wanted them to have a say because this, it'll be there, you know, they have to vote for who they think will enable them to be able to negotiate treaties. They'll take over this work from us eventually, that younger generation. It's really important that, you know, that we engage youth and that we listen to the youth voice in relation to what people, what community want from First Peoples Assembly of Victoria. Well, we'll be in touch uh, throughout the uh, entire process. It's going to be um, a, a big, big year. I hope you get the break that you need. Um, while I've while I've got you, there's another little process that is happening at the moment um, at the federal level, which, of course, is uh, the uh, referendum coming up to enshrine um, uh, an Indigenous voice in the Constitution and the Makarata process that falls out of that as well. Um, for you... Where do you stand on the voice? I know where you stand on the voice, but where do you stand? For me personally, I'm very much in favour of the voice and I'm going to be pushing for it for all all it's worth. Uh, However, the Assembly, uh, we have to come to um, a decision about how it will support a national campaign for voice and treaty and truth uh, because, you know, there's people have diverse opinions. Yep. But uh, we're going to meet and and we'll and, and work towards hopefully developing our official position and plans uh, at our next full meeting. Remember, I said in March is our last chamber meeting, so it'll be up to our members to decide that. But personally, for me, I am very much in favour of the voice. I think I I you know sort of the more that I've I've talked to people and the more that I've done because I am I've got to I've got to. Um, I'll let you know that I am on the referendum working group. Yep. Uh, so I just wanted to put that out there for people to know that. Um, but what we want to do is, and I didn't realise, Daniel, just how much when you listen about the Uluru Statement from the heart and you listen to the people that were there and that had supported it and said that what they wanted was, and it, and really it was in, in you know, it, it was that sort of like in that sequence, voice, treaty and truth. And that's what we did here in Victoria. Yep. We really established a voice. So, and we did the truth telling and what we're working now is in treaty. Well, we want really what we should be doing is saying what we've been able to achieve in Victoria, we want that for the nation. So the nation should be able to decide that they have a voice to the federal parliament. I think people have a right 
that Aboriginal people have a right to have that. The other thing that's really that I feel so passionate about is that recognition in the constitution of Aboriginal people. And I think the voice and the recognition, I think, are just so very important. There are things, Daniel, that we worked hard all our lives for, that we wanted, you know, that we fought the resilience of my elders yep. and my ancestors and the people that I've worked with in the past, the, the resilience that they've wanted is that, that we get that, that rightful recognition of us being First Nations people in the Constitution. And with that will come the voice, is that we really need to be able to ensure that what we're talking about and what we're, when, when we're conversing with government, federal government, that it's about... It's, it's about the things that we need to... People that come from it, you know, sort of people on the ground, the people out in communities about having a say about what works, letting them know that we don't want bureaucrats telling us that they have this program or that program or this program and that's going to work. But to enable community people to say, I know what will work best for my community. And if you do it my way or our way, we will achieve better outcomes. Well, I know some of the people that, um, you know, you've been involved with in the past and um, some of your elders and some of your, your older siblings as well. And I reckon mm -hmm. if some of them were around today, they would be absolutely amazed, particularly with the, the treaty process and where that is at now because it was something that um, was a million miles off while some of those people were at their, their peak in terms of their, of their advocacy. So um, you are doing them proud and um, uh, full, full strength to you. Um, you've done an amazing job as co-chair of the People's Assembly. If you uh, choose to run again, um, best of luck. But um, I hope you get some rest in the meantime, Art. Oh, no, I'm back from rest. I had, I did have, I did have a break. I'm back, back full, in full swing now again, Daniel. All right. So All it's right. been a busy week, so you know, back into it and making sure that you know that the things that we want and what you what you're saying about my oldest, I will tell you now. That's the, the what's kept me going. The work that they did and the work that they wanted to achieve is what drives me. So thank you. Yeah, well, it's really important to acknowledge these things because none of us get here by ourselves. Um, Artie Geraldine, thank you so much for your time. Once again, um, I'll be speaking to you throughout the year, I'm sure. Well, I hope you do, Daniel, and I hope that we'll have some really uh, good conversations and some really good news. I reckon we will. You take care of yourself, okay? You take care too. Thank you. Bye. And on to tonight's second guest um, it would have been hard to miss um, in the news over recent weeks. The crime wave as described by the mainstream media um, that has been underway in Alice Springs over the past weeks and months. When it comes to on-the-ground stuff like this, I'm actually quite loath to discuss it without actually being on the ground myself and having lived in and around it. So that's where our next guest comes in. Uh, Tanya McDonald is a Kerry Warung Gunai Kurnai woman, uh, from Victoria, but she is now living in Alice Springs. She's a lecturer in community services, children's health and community for Charles Darwin University. And recently co-penned an article for the conversation entitled Beneath the Alice Springs Crime Wave are complex issues and a lot of politics. I'm very glad to say that Tanya is on the line with us now. Tanya, welcome to Triple R. No worries. Thank you for having me. No sweat whatsoever. 
Um, describe to us, let's start at the, at the beginning, I guess. Describe to us what's been happening on the ground in Alice Springs over the, over recent months in terms of the crime wave that has, you know, pretty much, you know, gained um, the nation's attention. Yeah, well, it's um, I, I was actually headed back to Victoria over the Christmas holidays and heard a little stuff over the news and come back and was astounded to what I had come back to. Um, so obviously, the the media does lash out very quickly when when a story whirlwinds like there always has been, you know, a bit of trouble and a bit of crime within Alice Springs, and it is notable that um, during summer more come out, more come in from town camps, and it does spike, and this year it has significantly spiked a lot more due to the release of, you know, the recent alcohol bans previously in the year or late last year. It's like, honestly, when I'm on here, I've never felt scared or intimidated or anything. I know it looks different out on the streets, um, but I feel like the problem really leads to lie into more underlying issues mm-hmm. that needs to tackle the health um, and the intergenerational trauma that goes along with the past policies that have been played, you know, in well into a decade or two um, with the Indigenous communities here. You write in the article that uh, alcohol is commonly identified as intrinsic to much of the current crime wave in Alice Springs. Many crimes occur either in the pursuit of alcohol or because of excessive alcohol um, has been consumed. But below all that, there are a number of of what you just said, very complex issues that have resulted in um, substance abuse for for a lot of members of the communities up there. Um, What are some of those issues? Uh, uh, Clearly it is. Um, They get into the justice system quite young, so they're led on a very... um, destructive path quite early and again I'm just going to repeat and just say that is due to to past policies there needs to be more thrown into to the youth groups I think cultural there was a lot of being missing there the cultural and the way that uh, the upbringing was before these policies got brought in a lot got stripped from the indigenous communities about how elders could um interact and bring their culture, taken back out on doing their culture uh, groups and their own law, in a sense. Yeah. Not saying that that's um, all down to it, but, uh, you know, everything they've experienced up here is a lot later with, you know, part of the stolen generation and then recap on these past policies with the intervention that came in as well, which was very traumatic for not just the children, the families. Um, well, that played a really it, significant part in it. Isn't it interesting that um, we're, we're celebrating the 15th anniversary of the apology, but um, the intervention, which is also 15 years old, um, is not getting as much of um, a mention. One of the things that I've been sort of cognizant of watching it from afar is that the, not only are the children um, who are involved in the so-called crime wave uh, children of the intervention, but their parents are also, you know, children of the intervention as well. In terms of they don't, they haven't known any other sort of way of life other than what it's been like under the intervention. That's exactly right, and 
you, you can look at it, there is a lot that did do no wrong and a lot have said that there was no alcohol in their houses but they were still, you know, affected by their intervention as well. You're not saying it did have, like there was ones that did and there wasn't, it wasn't, but it's just that look on, a really bad look on all communities and all Indigenous people up here and, and that you really feel um, their effects on for their Indigenous people up here because there is that just sort of systemic Racism, I suppose you could say. Mm. So there's been um, uh, a, a national response to it. The Prime Minister uh, went up there a couple of weeks ago. What was it that he announced that um, the, the federal government would do to, with, in, in partnership with the Northern Territory government, to address the, the, the crime wave? Um, well, there was a lot of sort of money getting talked about training to the, the Indigenous local council here to rectify that. I didn't see him really meet with the elders and community out there, which is really disappointing. I think if you're going to tackle an issue like this, you need to hit the elders, go out and speak to community, get get everyone involved and really need to hit the ground running like that. Um, it is a whirlwind and it's still hard to comprehend. Even with the alcohol bans, like you do see when I instantly come back from Victoria, I've seen some what they call, um, you know, the cast bags. They yep. were laying around. So that you've got that problem where even though you've got the alcohol bans in, it's still coming in. It's still getting threaded in. People can buy that for triple the amount of money that you'd buy in an alcohol shop. And then that also affects, you know, the food. Yeah, you know, yeah, nutrition. Back to the poverty, housing. Yeah, so there's, there is so many issues that just come with their announcement of, you know, no liquor and we're trying to do what's best for the young children here. These young children do need a lot thrown at them. They do need a lot of youth support. I think uh, picking them up and putting them into the justice system quite early just enables them to stay in that system. As well, I think there needs to be a bit more intervention um, before that. Well, yeah, I think if you want to become, you know, something as a, a somewhat of a, a career criminal, the best way you can become a career criminal is to end up in, in jail. I, I, I just want to make sure that we're not understating the, the amount of crime up there as well, because these are issues that are, you know, terrifying members of the community, black and white, up there. Is this the worst that um, you, you've ever seen it? Yeah, it is. It is. And I haven't been here long um, and I have been on guard and I must say that I don't really go out, you know, past eight or nine o'clock at night, which is, it is concerning. You know, yeah, you terrible. should be able to be free to go out and um, I also don't really let, I've got two young boys here at home as well. I'm very cautious with that as well. Um, so it, it is. And I don't know what the solutions are. I really don't know, but... There needs to be a lot more thought in it than just a, a quick trip up and back. I think elders really need to be consulted. And there is so many different, you know, um, community groups yes. that need to get together as well and be consulted with it as well because everyone's got different thoughts and ideas. It, it's, it's not going to be an easy solution to fix. The way I sort of saw the sort of the national interest um, come upon Alice Springs seem to be as a result of 
uh, Peter Dutton comparing, you know, what needs to happen on the ground in Alice Springs as a way of perhaps undermining the um, the idea of a voice and how that would address such things. Is that the way you see? Is that the way um, you see the national trend attention being drawn to Alice Springs as what was initially a political exercise in the sparring around the voice? Yeah, yeah, I suppose you could say that in a sense. Um, you know, as I said, I've only been here for a short time. I've only seen what I've seen here, but it hasn't inevitably got so bad. Um, and figures, I'd like to see more statistics around what is happening. I know uh, years ago there was a really good youth group that would happen 24 hours and that got abolished and wasn't sustained because of um, statistics around that time. But then when you actually looked at the statistics, the crime wave absolutely um, doubled once the time the, the youth group finished. Um, so all these kids were out on the street. So the alcohol bans have, have come into place, but in terms of, of the overall package being offered up there, there seems to be little in terms of um, investment into things like youth groups, employment programs, housing rehabilitation therapeutic responses and support for local Indigenous leadership. Is that stuff that is on the table or is that stuff that still needs to be put on the table to seek some sort of investment um, urgently? I believe so. I believe so. And I know there was um, a big... We're all communities got together there at the Bachelor Institute and they had their meeting. I wasn't sure of the outcome of that um, because I'm not sort of local from here, but... I do um, lecture some of the students, Indigenous students, and they've, you know, raised their concerns with me as well. And as I said, they've come away with all different thoughts and uh, different ways to navigate it. Realistic, that's what needs to happen. I think it's, it's you don't just come up for a day and then, you know, speak to a few. I think it needs to be a long process. You really need to be on the ground speaking with it and working with all communities and councils and, and you know, the police to find some some sort of solution to help steer this direction of the crime wave. Well, it's always good to um, speak to someone on the ground. So thank you for your time, uh, Tanya. Tanya's um, article in the conversation, which has been uh, co-penned by Rolf uh, Gerrickson, is called Beneath the Alice Springs Crime Wave Are Complex Issues and a Lot of Politics. We've touched upon some of those tonight, but it'd be good to stay in touch with you, Tanya, and um, um, see how things either progress or devolve up there. But um, thank you so much for, um, for your time this evening. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>